the rest of us can turn to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Okay, I trust everyone's found Mark 1.14. Why don't we stand and read these two verses together? Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see it. We need to be sharing the gospel. We need to be preaching the gospel. We need to make sure the truths of the gospel are being proclaimed. This is the battle cry of many pastors, evangelists, and Christians alike. Right, Roger? Right. While all of us in Genesis House would stand in agreement, the question before is, what is the gospel? What is it? especially in light of our desire and focus on being in an externally focused church. What is the gospel? And how do we go about sharing it? Well, this is what we're going to be asking and seeking to answer over the next few weeks. But in beginning to answer the question, what is the gospel and how do we share it? The first question that really needs to be addressed is, how much time do you have? How much time do you have? Look at Paul's statement to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes, As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. NASB, unfathomable riches. What's Paul's point? The gospel is bigger than you can ever imagine. In a sense, Paul saying that we will never maybe even fully come to grasp with how deep and rich the gospel is. At the same time, in Romans, we're told to share the gospel. In Romans 10, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So you see the interesting dichotomy. In one sense, the gospel is unfathomable to totally comprehend. It's big, it's huge, it's rich. On the other side, we're told to share these unfathomable riches. That seems to be so big. So I'm going to give you a little exercise right now. We'll take about a minute, two minutes, and I'll stand in silence as you do this. Imagine you're called into a, do a podcast interview with uh, a reporter or a network, and they, or they want you to come in and give a report as to what the gospel is. What would you say? 
right now in your current understanding, what would you say if someone come into you for a report and an interview? What phrases would you use? What scriptures would you go to? Take the time right now to think it through. Okay, cutting you off, you can finish it later. Maybe even add some points that we learned today. <laughs> but I want to show you something very interesting from the mouth of Jesus in light of everything we've just said. You see, in Mark 1 and verse 14, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, it's hard to think like a first century Jew because we know the whole story. But this is the beginning of his ministry. He's not going to get crucified for three years. At this point in his ministry, there's no cross to speak of. And yet, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. <laughs> a crossless gospel at this point in ministry. But they can still repent and they can still believe. Now, near the end of the ministry, um, Jesus does reveal that the cross is going to occur. In Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. But this occurs near the end of his ministry. At the beginning of the ministry, though, he's saying, repent and believe the gospel, and yet there's no cross. So right away, that tells us we need to be thinking differently about the unfathomable riches and the endless treasures of the gospel message. And of course, they miss the truth. But nonetheless, the gospel was clearly, clearly more encompassing than just the cross of Christ. Now, I sound like a heretic almost, don't I? Could you imagine, like, that getting out there? At Genesis House, they teach a crossless gospel? I'm not saying that, the, that that's not central. In fact, that is the pinnacle of the gospel message. But taking off our North American lenses, Jesus did say, repent and believe the gospel, and only told the disciples privately that the cross was going to happen, and they missed the truth. So this is really exciting, and we should really open up your mind to the depth and the riches of the gospel message. So my desire is to expand your understanding beyond just the forgiveness of sins. This is why N.T. Wright made this comment. Actually, that's her first lesson. <laughs> so just write that down. While the cross and the offer for the forgiveness of sin is crucial and essential to the gospel message, the gospel is so much bigger and richer than that. And so, N.T. Wright makes this claim. The Christian faith is a kaleidoscope, and most of us are colorblind colorblind, not colorblind. It is multidimensional, and most of us manage to hold at most two dimensions in our head at one time. 
It is symphonic and we can just about whistle one of the tunes. So we should not be alarmed if someone sketches a third or fourth or even fifth dimension that we had overlooked. We ought to welcome it if, if a musician plays new parts of the harmony to live the tune we ought, thought we knew. And so again, Paul makes the claim that the, the gospel has endless treasures and unfathomable riches. So where are we going to begin? We're not actually going to necessarily begin with heavy theology. Let me just say this, that if we can say anything about this gospel message, it's intended to be public news with public implications. The gospel is meant to be public news with public implications. You see, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion. It means the good news or good message. That's why in the two texts we read, Ephesians 3 and Romans 10, it actually uses the word good news in there. It substitutes that for the gospel message. It's where we get the word evangel from. Evangelist. He's a good evangelist. She's a good evangelist. We need to be evangelists. This idea that we are going to be spreaders of the good news. We're good newsizers, if you will. But what's really important about this word is that for those living in the first century under um, Roman rule and in Jewish thought, there was a, already an understanding of gospel. Already an understanding of gospel, good news. And so I want to look at it first from the Jewish perspective and then the Roman perspective to see how this fits into public news with public implications. So hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah announced a message of good news to Jews who were in exile in Babylon who had no hope of being restored. Okay? Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, which is Israel, your God reigns. So Isaiah had a gospel message for the Jewish people. One day in their future, there would be a promise of restoration. No longer exiled, no longer under captivity, a promise of freedom and healing. And God's kingdom would come and reign. So as Jesus came proclaiming in Mark 1, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, the Jewish people would have expected a great transformation to take place as they heard the echoes of Isaiah being preached in Jesus' words. They, were, they would have understood it as Jesus announcing that God's reign was coming and they were going to come through him as the Messiah. This was really good news in light of Rome being in power and then being subject to them. And remember the two Easter messages about just where, how far the Jewish thought was in terms of what Jesus had come to do and why he was a disappointment. So that's the Jewish thought of good news. But then there's the Roman thought of good news. I didn't know this until recently, 
But the word gospel is actually not unique to Christianity. You, right? you might think, the gospel, that's a Christian word. Not so. Actually, this was a Roman word. And those living in the first century under Roman rule were very familiar with gospel. And the truth was that Caesar had his own gospel message. Caesar had his own euangelion. And so, he had a version of good news. And so Brenda Colleen, in her book, captures Caesar's gospel. In the Roman Empire world, she says, the gospel was Caesar's good news that he had established peace and security for the world. Caesar was the savior who had brought salvation to the whole world. The peoples of the empire were therefore to have faith in their lord, the emperor. Moreover, Caesar was to be honored and celebrated by the assemblies of the cities such as Philippi, Corinth, and Ephesus. And I love this because the word for church is ecclesia. And we use that today. But look at the parallels. Look at the parallels between Caesar as Lord and Jesus as Lord and what the people are called to in response. So, this is what was going on. And my professor, Daryl Johnson, taught me this, that these, how they would get this message out was by sending evangelists to go through the world announcing by foot or by horsemen Caesar's good news. And so they, when, when you see like a, a footman or a horseman come into town with Roman apparel representing the Caesar, what does that tell you about the public nature of the gospel and its implications? The citizens go, oh man, we've got to listen up. This is going to be life-changing for us. And there's going to be a call to allegiance. The second word, though, that demonstrates the public nature of this gospel was also familiar to those in the first century. You'll notice that in Mark 1 and 14, it says here that he came in preaching the gospel, or proclaiming the gospel. That word preaching or proclamation is the Greek word kerygma, which means to proclaim, to herald, to do it open and Publicly, It conveys the idea of a town crier gathering together the citizens in order to announce something of importance, one intended to bring significant changes to the community. I've seen some movies like, of like, you know, sort of the days of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and you often see, like in those types of movies, this public town crier, like standing up in the middle of the square and announcing about, you know, their famous knight that's going to go into a battle and maybe like what's going on with the king and the empire and so on. We've all seen these images of hear ye, hear ye, and the people gather to hear what's going on in the community and what the authority figures have to say about what's happening. And the implications were obvious. What these town criers were going to announce were to make changes to the town. And so now we can see the great significance of Jesus' words. The great significance. He's, he's heralding a message out there publicly. And it's the euangelion. It's, the, it's this idea of him being Lord and Savior. 
And he's coming to gather people so they'll swear allegiance to him. Now given the everyday Roman propaganda about Caesar as Lord and the King, those who heard Jesus' announcements then would have understood that he was announcing something that was challenging Caesar's universal lordship. You're living under Roman rule and you're used to hearing gospel, 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 proclamation, town crier, horsemen coming in, footmen coming in. You're thinking, Caesar's got a message and it's Jesus. <laughs> and he says, I have come to reign and to bring the kingdom of God to this world. You are to call me Lord. I'm declaring that I'm, I am above Caesar. And it's going to come with implications of allegiance. And to change your life and to change the social structure of society. And here's what's important. While much could be said about what these images teach us, it is crystal clear that in no way do they convey the idea that the gospel and its proclamation ever intended to be a private matter. In no way was the gospel ever intended to be a private matter. As a result then, we'd expect to see this in Jesus' ministry, wouldn't we? And this is what we have. Let's look at the public nature of it. His ministry was definitely not reserved for once a week behind closed doors, was it? <laughs> While he was teaching behind closed doors in formal religious institutions, like the, like the synagogues and stuff, his primary sphere was in the public realm. And everywhere he went, he took the opportunity to proclaim truth. So in Mark 1.14, it says here that he was going through Galilee proclaiming this gospel. In Mark chapter 2, we see him in people's homes. We see him in people's homes. That's where he healed the paralytic man, for example, in a home. In Mark chapter 4, we see him by the sea. And it says there that large crowds were gathering, and so he had to get in a boat and began to teach them while they were on land. In Mark 5.1, he was in the countryside when he encountered the men met by a a demoniac, like a demoniac man who had a demon inside him. How about the public implications of it? Well, they were profound. In Mark 1.14, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, listen up, Jewish religious people that attend the synagogues and claim they know God because of the rituals that they perform. You're not right with that. Your synagogue attendance, your reading of the Torah, the Old Testament, your circumcision, all your attempt to obey the law, you're not right with God. You need to repent. You need a change of mind and a change of life. And you're, you have to go Jesus' way. It forced a change in allegiance in Mark 10, 34. Whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves daily and take up their cross and follow me. A decision had to be made. Who was truly Lord and Savior? He was heralding a change of administration. There was a new sheriff in town. The implications for us is pretty big at Genesis House. As well as the church at large locally and nationally. 
There are significant changes that need to be made. Again, uh, my professor, Daryl Johnson, made this statement, and I'm in full agreement with him on this. His comment, as someone who's been in ministry for 40, 50 years and been a professor at, at a college, said that if the gospel had not been lost in its public influence, we as a country would not be where we are today as a Canadian society. I'll say that again. If the gospel had not lost its public influence in our Canadian culture, we would not be where we are today as a Canadian society. The application is massive. This is going to be, well, this requires then God's people to rise up and make every effort to reclaim the gospel's influence beyond the private realm looking for ways to have the gospel infiltrate every part of Canadian culture. This will mean seeking the Lord through the means of repentance and prayer, and perhaps looking for creative ways to bring the gospel back to the public forefront. Now we are seeking to make amends and changes in Genesis House to do this, and we're doing this by recognizing that we need to move from being an internally focused to externally focused church. And so we need to continue to cry out to the Lord, asking Him to go ahead of us, to open doors, to pray for boldness, and ask Him for unique ways in which we can carry this out and make this a reality. And some of you, a few months ago, well, a few, I guess, yes, submitted some ideas about how to become more externally focused, and I'm keeping those things in mind. But perhaps it's just really simple. And just, we kind of maybe just have to return to Bible basics. I met a pastor in Saskatchewan at a conference by the name of Stephen Elliott. In 1988, uh, he planted a church in Ontario, a place called Kanata. I've never heard of it, you might know it. After five years of ministry in Kanata, Elliott found himself a, a little bit frustrated by the evangelistic efforts uh, in his community. So he began studying the scriptures, looking for key phrases such as, they put their faith in him, or they believed in him. While many significant factors did arise from Eliot's study, one factor that was uh, interesting was that in, in the conversion accounts recorded in scripture, the gospel pro proclaimer invariably included a concise, presentation of the gospel message, so it had to be spoken, to be believed in. Number two, though, particularly what caught him by surprise, was the fact that 50% of the gospel presentations were intentional, planned, evangelistic events. Those of you who have just read Acts, these, they were intentional, planned, evangelistic events. 50% had a, a, were planned. Now, this got me thinking. Now, I don't know if this is from the Lord or it's my thoughts. But I've envisioned it off and on over the last six months about when I walked by the amphitheater down by the library about standing there. Planned out evangelistic outreach with our church where we book that space 
And I stand in that amphitheater and I preach the gospel. And you're there. And as people are walking by, you're offering to pray with people, invite people, pray for healing for people. You are the evangelists. You're the people on foot, on, on, on the horse, gathering the people as they walk by. The reason why I think it's from the Lord and not from me is because that scares the daylight out of me. There's some safety in this room because you came of your own free will and your own volition to be here. Preaching out there, they're not, they're not expecting to encounter that. But you know that famous psalm that people take out of context a lot? The one about, if you trust in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. And people think, oh great, I'm going to get a Lamborghini for Christmas. It's like, no, 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 that's not what it means. It means that as you trust in Him, He puts His desires of His heart in you, and your heart changes towards His. So that's why I feel like this might be more than just me thinking about this. The timing of how we're going in the church, as a church and as a community and uh, the desperate cry for this community and how to reach the lost. This might be something that we're being called into. And maybe it's as simple as planning these events three times in the summer or whatever. But I want to put that in your hands so that you understand the direction that we're going and you can pray into these things and let me know what's God saying to you about all this. But again, the, the lessons are simple. What is the gospel as we start this series? Well, while the cross and the offer of the forgiveness of sin is crucial and central, and there's no gospel without the cross in its fullness, the gospel is so much bigger and richer than that church. So much bigger. Why would this matter? What a difference it'll make in how you disciple people and how you, speak, how you become evangelistic. As you listen to people and the cries of their heart and where they're struggling and where they need uh, restoration, God will have much more to offer in the good news than just you can be forgiven of sin. For some, that's all it requires. That's the biggest thing. But there's other people that maybe have moved past that and received that forgiveness that still need more good news. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount preached good news. And it was a crossless gospel message. So much more to offer. And so as we learn what the gospel is, we could seek to reach them, the lost in the cries of their own heart. Number two, the gospel is meant to be the public news with public implications. The Jewish Isaiah passages make it very clear the gospel was meant to affect the entire nation of Israel was to then impact the rest of the world. And then the Roman theology, Caesar, I mean, <laughs> he made it clear that when he spoke, people were to listen, and it was to change the social atmosphere of the cities and towns that they lived in. And Jesus modeled that to a T. The public nature of his ministry with the call to allegiance and social change. Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, what is the gospel? We thank you so much that it's more than we ever imagined. And we pray, Lord, that this would uh, change the way we think about things. That yes, it culminates in the forgiveness of sins, but you intended to give us life and life abundantly. 
help us to understand what that means in the practical experience of life for ourselves and how to share that with others, whether in discipleship or in evangelistic opportunities. Give us wisdom on how to share, to be truth speakers but not offensive, and to stand up for you and yet um, and be willing to count the cost at the same time do it with wisdom so we don't be a, a hurt people by the way we say things and the way we do things. Um, yeah, we look forward to what you do have in store for us and how you're going to lead us through this next season as we seek to put this into practice more and more. And we praise you for your goodness. Amen.